Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. My guest today has given his life to horsepower of all sorts. Be it gallopers, pacers, trucks or buses, Terry Henderson has had a crack at bridging the gap between mediocrity and superiority. The OTI racing and breeding operation of which Terry is the chief executive is now more than two decades old. But the 2022 Golden Slipper was a first as OTI had a runner. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Sadly, the slipper didn't fit for your first lady, but I want to start by asking you if she is the bellwether of a new strategy in the type of horse that you acquire. Uh, not really, no. I think uh, whilst we're always expanding the sorts of horses that we have and uh, the geographic locations that they race in, um, she just came along really as uh, fortuitously as a result of a relationship with Spendthrift Farm. So, uh, no, she wasn't a, a, we didn't set out to buy a golden slipper runner, but uh, delighted we ended up with one. She strikes me as right being right down the middle of your strategy as an opportunist, Terry. You, you're somebody who, if the right deal comes along, you seem to be quite swift in striking. Yes, uh, and, and really, I often say, uh, to do what we do and get the right sort of horses for our owners, we do have to be opportunists. And, uh, and that takes a, a range of forms. Uh, it goes from one extreme, like uh, buying half a horse in Europe that you'll ultimately try and uh, buy the other half and move it to Australia or come out here with the owner. And we've done that quite a few times. Mm. Uh, often trainers in Australia, and we don't buy that many horses in Australia, but often trainers will approach us and say, look, I'm, I'm going to lose this horse to so-and-so or Hong Kong or whatever. Would you be interested in buying it? And uh, and so we do that quite often and are doing that more and more. Uh, and of course, we have breeders that come to us and say, look, I haven't been able to sell this horse, but I really like it. Um, or in this case with Lady Laguna, um, we had the breeder come to us and say, look, uh, these horses are not really commercial horses to go through our yearling sales. Uh, would you be interested in coming up and having a look at a few? Because, um, you know, we'd rather them stay in Australia and not go off to... Uh, Asia or wherever and uh, as a result we may be able to help the mare out in the long term so but look we always look at opportunities like that but surely there's some due diligence there you the way you just described that Terry you sound like a charity <laughs> no, we're no charity I can assure you of that our due, I, we pride ourselves in our due diligence process as being the toughest around uh, and uh, you can't afford for them not to be particularly on the betting side um, you know, the first half of the decisions in buying a horse are made during that negotiation phase where you talk to uh, a potential um, a vendor, uh, you do a deal, uh, and uh, you know where you're going, provided the second half kicks in. And that's once we've done that deal in principle, we do our due diligence. And uh, obviously, the key part of that is our vet. Uh, we always vet a horse. We, we employ two vets on every horse that we look at. Um, right. Now, half of that's because many of our horses are overseas. And while our vets overseas are good, and I'm including New Zealand in this, um, there's not 
nothing like a guy on the ground that's got to treat these horses day after day. So once we've done the first half, the x-ray scans and report come back to our vet and we use uh, Ballarat Equine Services for that. And uh, we uh, then decide whether we'll go ahead. Uh, in the process of doing that, um, we've got very close relationships with uh, people in most geographic locations and uh, we make sure we do that a thorough inspection of the horse because the vet report doesn't tell you everything and if you're no. buying particularly in the last two years where you can't get to see the horse yourself you really need someone you can trust to tell you well this horse is this and so on and you know you know he's only 15 one hands high you know so those sorts of things come out with um, the due diligence process now, she's an elegant filly bred by an offshoot of a bluegrass superpower and trained by one of Sydney's rising stars. It's a far cry from lining the fence, watching tough as teak standard breads pace and trot their way around the Melbourne showgrounds, Terry. Your earliest equine endeavours were in the gig-related code. Talk to me about the genesis of your paces operation. The genesis of it was as a 10-year-old, a horse going around called Dusty Miller that I developed a very... Uh, great fondness for and um, I followed him through his career and this is back in the late 50s right uh, he, was, he was a top class pacer uh, but I think I saw the horse in the flesh twice back then uh, I had a punt during my school days and um, later early uni days and realized that that was certainly not my strength I gave up punting for all the right reasons and uh, didn't get back into it until my early early 30s uh, when playing golf with a mate and um, he uh, said would you like to buy a horse my uh, business was going okay I bought half a horse he ended up running off to Queensland with another woman and left me with the other half of the horse and uh, I, then I decided to uh, uh, try and do something with the horse and uh, immediately realized that um, buying going horses was far more uh, advantageous than buying yearlings and that was in the early 80s, and it's been the same ever since. Yeah, well, you obviously made a success and found some horses that could really go. You raced two champions in the standard bread space, Choken and Holmes DG, who ascended the, the pinnacle of the sport in becoming Miracle Mile champs twice each. But in between, you raced a thoroughbred that couldn't do the thing they were bred to do, trot. How did Doremus enter your life? Yes, well, Doremus, um, he came in... Um, we did have a, a, a I had a, ended up racing some nice thoroughbreds in the late 80s with Colin Hayes and some friends uh, and um, towards the end of the 80s when Paces Australia which was my pacing business was concerned uh, Colin said I don't know why you're not doing this in thoroughbreds right. uh, and immediately sold me two or three thoroughbreds as Colin was wont to do and um uh, in 1991, we had a very, bought a going horse off Gerald Ryan. Again, Gerald, who I knew, said, uh, I'd suggest you buy this. It's uh, still a maiden after eight races. But he went on to win the Australian Derby as a three-year-old when the race was over in Perth. It was right. a group one race then. So the, the, for that period during the 90s, basically we, we were dual code. So by the time 1993 came around, we were buying going horses, be they trotters and gallopers. And uh, a call came through from New Zealand from uh, a journo that I knew who recommended that we have a look at this horse that had just won his maiden, uh, and that was Doremus. And uh, of course, uh, with uh, the help of Lee Friedman, we put together a partnership and bought that horse. And um, 
and the rest was history after that. So were you using the contacts, but also the owners and partners in, in the, the trotting arm of Paces to get the thoroughbred arm up and going? Or did you find that owners and, and the connections differed across the codes? Uh, funny enough, the area where there was a lot of commonality was in New Zealand. Right. And, and I was probably lucky that I was buying most of the trotters in those days from New Zealand. Uh, and of course, in New Zealand, the profile of the trotting thoroughbred scene is very different from it is here, where there's a huge void between the two. Mm. At that stage in New Zealand, uh, we were racing horses with the, with the Purden family. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, Roy Purden and Barry Purden at the time, they had um, Patrick Hogan and uh, John Walker and many of the stalwarts. They were all racing trotters with, with Roy. And, and Roy was racing, Roy and Barry were racing gallopers with them. So the journos in New Zealand had a, you know, knew of our dual code operation. So we had a lot of, lot of assistance there. And broadly, the racing fraternity did, whether it was public, uh, whether it was uh, trotting or, or thoroughbreds. And, um, and that was a big advantage because uh, really that's how a lot of the referrals to the thoroughbreds came about uh, as a result of that, that, that trotting exposure that we'd had for so long. Now, Doremus, in a way, was a, a bit like a, a New Zealand standard bred in, in, in the way that he was able to go on for season after season. But you talked earlier, Terry, about due diligence. Doremus's front legs weren't the best, were they? And he wasn't exactly fashionably bred. Were there moments when he actually arrived in Australia where you wondered whether you maybe made a mistake? Uh, yes, um, I vividly remember it. Uh, we were up at um, Doombin and um, he just arrived from New Zealand and, and I hadn't seen the horse um, because we'd only bought him to get him across for the, uh, 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 for the Queensland derby. Lee Friedman simply said, look, I've just seen your horse. I'd arrived on the track, hadn't seen him. He said, he's a you know, skinny rat. Um, he said, if he can run in the first half dozen today, I think we're doing well. We might have a nice horse. Um, I went and looked at him. He was a wishy-washy chestnut, uh, very light-framed, uh, leggy, uh, and, um, and, and, and fundamentally, he uh, took two seconds off the class record in the 2,200-metre race that he ran on that day. Mm. So Lee came back and said, we have a serious horse on our hands here. And uh, unfortunately, he got hit in the eye with a, a shoe that, that, uh, in that race, and it was probably fortuitous because it stopped his campaign um, Lee then managed him incredibly well through his four-year-old year and had him cherry ripe for that five-year-old year when he won the Caulfield Melbourne Cups. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and Young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate raising and consigning top-class future stallions. Before we, 
we go on to that wonderful five-year-old season because it must have been life-changing for, for you. What did the negotiation to acquire Doremus teach you that you've brought into your future life? Because I gather it was not a straightforward negotiation. His original owners weren't particularly keen to part with him. No. Uh, behind me, where I'm talking to you from, there is a handwritten agreement on the wall. Uh, and that's the purchase of the, the, the uh, Doremus. What had happened, Doremus ran 10th in his first race and he won the second race. We were then asked if we'd like to buy the horse for $100,000. Right. Um, and uh, by this time, the time we did negotiations, I hadn't vetted the horse and whatever, but um, I said, okay, we'll do that. But look, we haven't got time. And the trainer wanted to race it again over there in case that the negotiations went south. So I said, look, tell, tell the owner, I'll give him $5,000 and I want an option to buy the horse after this next race. So he can still run the horse. He can keep the prize money. Uh, but if the horse runs well or whatever it does, I've got an option to buy the horse for $5,000 and pay the other 95. Well, uh, what happened? He came out and he won the, the third race very, very well. And as a result of that, we then put the processes in place. We had, had the horse vetted and I was getting no response from the owner who turned out to be a great friend, I might tell you, when we were trying to send him the money. And I vividly remember a phone call that I made from McDonald's up at Benalla. I was on the, I was working in the way through, and and I got finally got through to Jimmy Gibbs, and I said, Jim, you haven't sent me through any details as to where you send the money. And Jim's response was, Well, we've got a bit of a problem here. And I said, What? What's that, Jim? He said, Well, I don't actually own the horse. Oh. I said, Who owns the horse? He said, My wife Anne. I said, You're kidding, aren't you? And uh, he said, no, no, we, um, we, uh, she doesn't want to sell. And I said, well, Jim, the horse won't race again until we sort this out, uh, because this is serious. You know, clearly the horse is a lot better than the $100,000 horse that we negotiated to buy. So as a result of that, um, uh, Jim said, um, uh, look, I'll put the wife on. So I repeated the discussion with Jim and said, uh, we're, going to, we're going to end up in court over this, Anne. Um, what do you want to do? I said, you know, it's, it's silly to do this. So I said, um, do you want to keep some of the horse? And she said, what do you mean? I said, do you want me to pay you 85000 and you keep 10%? And uh, she said, give me a minute. <laughs> she went away and spoke to Jim, obviously. Mm. Uh, and that's what we did. And um, it came out later that, that obviously receives a very good offer for the horse after that race. They raced the horse with us right through to the end of the campaign. They spelled the horse for us when it was with Lee. And I used to send the horse back to New Zealand for spelling. And we became great friends. The reason that document is on the wall behind me is <laughs> when you're dealing in a situation like this, always get it in writing because we would never have had Doremus without that note behind me. That's a lesson in life. Even if it's written in crayon, listeners, make sure you get it in get it in writing uh, and hopefully you'll have a reason to frame it. And the reason basically came in the spring of 1995. Where we referenced the fact that he won a Caulfield Cup, but surely it was the other one, the three-handled loving cup that stands tall in your memory. Yes, it does. People often say you know what's what's the best race you've won and, and clearly it's a melbourne cup it's it is life-changing for many people that have that um that pleasure and for the owners that we had involved it was the same or all good friends uh 
two of them still race with us after 30 odd years or just right. on 30 years. Um, a couple have passed away, unfortunately, uh, but um, it is a life-changing experience. So two years later, Doremus is back in the thick of the Cups action. Could yep. you argue that one of his greatest performances was in defeat? Exactly. And, uh, and it's funny, uh, whilst Bauer presented himself later on and we sort of grit our teeth a little bit about that, uh, I've never felt sour about um, losing to Might and Power because the way Might and Power ran that race to fend off challenger after challenger and then just get there in front of Doremus, it would have been an injustice had he not, yeah. uh, not won the race um, because he, he was a truly great horse. And uh, to finish second behind him in both the Caulfield and the Melbourne Cups that he was were great efforts by, by Doremus. You, you've teased it. You're doing my job for me, Terry. I, I want to take this opportunity to reflect on your approach to disappointment. Doremus loses a cut by a whisker. Bowers' rump was in front of Vudes. And even as recently as the All-Star Mile, I'm Thunderstruck, is a bridesmaid, uh, albeit to a very good horse. What is Terry Henderson's approach to dealing with coming up short, particularly as you also have fellow owners to interact with in the aftermath and, and perhaps explain what happened to in the aftermath? Yes, well... I can blame one of the, the, the great legends who recently died of harness racing, Roy Purden, for a one-liner that he gave me back in, in the 80s when we were faced with a situation where choking and well, it was early 90s, actually, where he, he, he ran down a, a track in a, in a New Zealand Cup, which was most, most uncharacteristic. It was three weeks before he actually won the Miracle Mile. And Roy said, son, if you want to enjoy yourself in this game, you learn to turn the page. Yeah. And it was, and it, and it's, and it's stuck with me ever since. And the fact is that with our owners, and obviously our owners get very disappointed, and you have all sorts of characters as owners, and some immediately want to go and shoot someone, and some are very philosophical about the way the industry works. But I think if you can learn to turn the page in this industry, learn from the race as much as you possibly can, uh, and uh, and then okay, move on, and. Uh, I think that helps you have a, a long-term uh, satisfactory relationship in horse racing. I've always been a fan of that line from Rudyard Kipling's If, if, if you can meet yeah. with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, you know, you, you are a man. I think Roy Purden's quote is probably a little bit more true in the reality of racing. Would that be fair? They're not oh, the same, but you've got to get over it. You have to get over it. We live in a terrific racing uh, environment in Australia. Because of our stake money, everyone's trying to win. You know, you find very, very few people in these better races and city races that aren't really trying to do their best. Sure, there are horses going out there and they need a run, and we all know that. But we're really out there to maximise the results that we can achieve. So, you know, blaming people who are doing their best to try and produce that result is a simple waste of time, be it jockeys or trainers or whatever. Um, accepting the result, learning from the result and moving forward, trying to make the best plans for that horse going forward uh, with your trainer is, is certainly, I think, the, the, the way that you, as I said before, you get satisfaction out of the game in the longer term. Yeah. Talk to me about the origins of OTI or at least the beginnings of your partnership with Simon O'Donnell, because I gather initially the model was almost the reverse of what it is now. It was about selling into the Northern Hemisphere. Is that correct? 
It's it's certainly correct. Um, what happened is that um, I'd known Simon for um, a number of years, and uh, in 1999, Simon approached me and he said, "We thought of having a going into a partnership with somebody." By this stage, my proper business had, had been sold, and I had a bit more time. And I said, "Not really, mate. You know, I'm quite happy." And he said, "Look, I've got this idea that we could buy these mares uh, that are being bred to." the likes of Unbridled Song and these top American horses and sell them back to, to the Americans. There'd been a couple of very good um, Kiwi horses being shipped across to America that had done well on the track. That's and right. Happy, course, happy and you know it and a exactly. few others in the late 90s. Yeah, That's that. exactly. And then um, so I thought Simon's idea was a, was a great idea. So we both went over to Kentucky and we spoke to all the breeders and asked them and everyone kept saying, what a great idea and so on. So we tried to actually formulate a bit of a business to actually move these horses back while we individually ran our own racing business. Uh, Simon had O'Donnell Thoroughbreds and I had Paces Australia. So we decided, it was Simon's idea, so we decided to call this third business uh, O'Donnell Thoroughbreds International. And, and so away we went. Well, after a couple of years, the, the, we couldn't get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> right. We just, we were knocking our heads against the wall. But we knew each other, but we'd become quite good friends in the process of, of doing all this. And so what we decided to do was combine both Paces Australia and uh, O'Donnell Thoroughbreds and, and put it into O'Donnell Thoroughbreds International and change the name of O'Donnell Thoroughbreds International to OTI. And then we selected some new colours. Well, we both played for 40 teams that had yellow and blue. Right. Uh, so we just we didn't take us long to come up with a set of colours that represented the football teams that we played for. But they were Daniloquin's colours and they were the Elfington YCW's colours. And from there, we we had a, a, a lovely partnership for 15 years and, and Simon went off and developed another business in, in software, which uh, is, was quite successful for him. It was a really lovely partnership. The 2022 sales season is here, and if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you'll be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. What was it like the early years? Because obviously you'd enjoyed success through paces and you'd, you'd won a Melbourne Cup. Simon had enjoyed success. He'd raced Dayro Bay and a few other group horses, group one horses. And of course, back in those days for our younger listeners, Channel 9 was covering a lot of the, the racing coverage on a Saturday and he was essentially the face of, of racing. Did you migrate owners over and then more came in because of that sort of marketable face? How were you finding owners for this new new venture initially? Well, obviously, um, Pace has had a, a number of owners anyway. And by this stage, I'd, I'd start to wind down my involvement in harness racing. Um, obviously, there was more focus going into the thoroughbreds. Uh, and Simon had a tremendous uh, influence in keeping uh, racing on free-to-air television because of his connection with Channel 9. Mm. Uh, I vividly remember uh, the experience of sitting around a table in Channel 9 studios in Sydney with Simon, 
try to get uh, some of the heavyweights in the breeding industry and the two sales companies to uh, uh, come to the party to keep the funds up to Channel 9 so that they continue to basically uh, put free-to-air uh, racing on. And Simon, Simon was driving that. And uh, to the great credit of Katie Page, when everyone was, was sort of <laughs> kept their hands in their pocket, uh, Katie said, well, look, Magic Millions are going to put in this and uh, the Jerry's Farm are going to put in this. And then she went around the room and pointed to four or five others. And what are you going to put in and what did you? And before you knew it, uh, I think we have well over a million dollars to help fund the racing for the next two seasons. Uh, so, wow. you know, that was Simon's influence on keeping racing on free to wear back in those days. Yeah. Wow. I did not. That's a great. That is a great story. Fantastic. Well, there have been some imitators to the OTI model in the subsequent 20 plus years. I don't think it's patting your back too hard to say you've established yourself among the most successful operators. But what is it that OTI does and what decisions did you make that separates you from what other syndicators offer? Because to my eye, you are different to other syndicators. When I go to a yearling sale, the breeders usually say, what are you doing here? because it's not our patch to go and buy horses from there. Clearly, 90% of our horses come from offshore. Most of those are New Zealanders, and most and a lot, about 35% uh, come from Europe. And most of them are going horses. These are horses that have actually shown something. And even when we breed our own or we go to a yearling market, we often don't produce them to the market until they've actually broken in or they've showed us something that says that they can at least run. So that that is a from a model a model point of view that is that is different. I think um, and I had to do a, a recent um, conference in Europe on on Australian syndication and it made me reflect just how how well off our syndication or our industry is because of syndication. Mm. I think we're blessed with very good syndicators across the board in Australia. And, and, and when we talk syndication today, it's not just the syndicators that are syndicating. Our biggest syndicators are, in fact, our trainers. Fact. And, and, and that model really underpins, to a large extent, our sales performance. And we've seen how strong that's been in the last few years even though globally it's strong, but it really it gets us into that middle market and the Europeans have difficulty getting into that middle market. So a combination of those sorts of, um, well, that syndication approach by us certainly differentiates from the other syndications, but the fact that syndication works so well in Australia, I think is we all, we all benefit from that. Now, Terry, this is the third time, I think, in this chat that you've used the term going horse. And obviously... <sighs> The Pacers model showed that that could work. What I want to know is, what was the light bulb moment for the Northern Hemisphere going horses idea that you and I presume Simon had together? When did that ding moment happen for you? There were probably two stages to it. One is that we'd seen uh, the good European horses come over here in the 90s and and Doremus raced against, you know, some of the better ones. Mm. Uh, we saw a number of them come over here and, and be unsuccessful. But, you know, horses like Double Trigger, Vintage Crop, and those sort of horses come up over here. And it clearly showed, given that we had a propensity for middle distance and staying types, that the better quality horses were over there. And fortuitous Tony Noonan, who we, we work with in those early days, uh, Tony had one and said, would you be interested in buying this horse? And 
it, it, we bought it and it wasn't much good. But at about the same time, a horse called Hugs Dancer um, um, came across uh, to race in the Melbourne Cup. It was owned by a Yorkshireman and a Lancashireman, which was pretty unusual. Um, and that, and um, he, he, uh, he, he ran well at the Melbourne Cup. And after the race, we set about trying to buy half of him, which we were able to. The horse went back to England. We bought half of him. He came back to Australia. And then we bought the owners out and he stayed, stayed in Australia. And uh, David Hayes trained him when he came back to Australia. And um, uh, amazingly, in those days, uh, the Hayes camp had the policy of giving a horse a run around the middle of the year um, in Adelaide uh, over a mile. And well, then, it worked, hadn't it? They'd done it with Al Murad and Jern and all of those, those Sheikh Hamdan horses. Yeah, yeah. That's right. exactly. So um, David produced the horse the following spring and won the um, uh, Maccabi Diva, then known as the, the Craigley. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we thought, golly, this, is an this horse had never ran less than 2,600 metres in his life. And here he is uh, coming out winning a mile race at Flemington. And I think it was about 50 to 1. So um, that sort of really got us, got us interested. And through a couple of great relationships that we still have, um, with agents, particularly Hubie de Berg in those early days. Yes. Um, we actually, and I've known Hubie for, for years, obviously, because back in the days when he used to work for Shea Camden, um, Hubie started to look out for horses for us and it, it blossomed from there. Literally, my next question was going to be the fact that some of the best OTI horses have been stayers in Europe, but have become middle distance stars in, a, in Australia. And I'm going to throw you just the names of a few, and I want you to give me your reflections on, on, on those horses as we go, if that's okay. Let's start with Guy Chop. A very special horse. It probably rates up there with the Remus in terms of my favourite horses. He, he took his owners around the world. We went from everywhere, to, from Dubai to Hong Kong. We went to, obviously, England. We raced at Royal Ascot with him, um, and obviously around all the top tracks in France. He... Um, his joints were always a bit iffy. Thanks to the great work of Andrew Cust at Ballarat Equine, uh, he mm. got him through to his first campaign in Australia when still trained by Anton de Vontrigant, uh, a small-time trainer in the south of France, uh, to win the McKinnon for us. Uh, he ran a nice race in the Cox Plate, then won the McKinnon, went back to France. Uh, then he did, then did a tendon. Uh, we brought him back to Australia to rehab, uh, and we, he initially rehabbed down in Gippsland and uh, came back with Darren Weir uh, to win a couple of Group 1s, uh, did a tendon again, then came back, and he didn't win a Group 1 after a tendon, but he ran second in the railway, I think it was, in Perth. Mm. After that. So, you know, a long, a lovely long career, a lovely horse, and when you talk about professional approach in the industry, we were blessed with great veterinary advice, and very good rehab advice from um, initially um, Gippsland and then Warnable. His longevity was almost standard bread like. And as you said, he hopped back and forth across the equator more so than many OTI horses. Was that a reflection of the mix of owners he had, or was it just the horse himself dictating where the best place to put him was? If you've got a, a top class horse in Europe and he's a horse that's capable of traveling, um, obviously. Um, to America. There's some nice races for horses over there mm. from Europe uh, or Middle East. 
uh, or indeed down to Hong Kong, we, we talk to our owners and see if they're happy to leave the horse up there. Because you never like to take a horse like Galo Shop off, off the trainer. Mm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very important horse for that trainer. If he's a middle-of-the-road horse, or he looks as though he's he's sort of um, hit, hit the crest like, say, Manigar did, well, then you can bring him down and then go from there. The Inglis Easter Yearling Sale statistically provides the best opportunity for you to buy the best horses. Inglis Easter has been the source of 28 individual Group 1 winners since 2018. 16 Group 1 winning colts, stakes winners in 10 different countries and 8 Group 1 winners that could have been bought for $200,000 or less, including Exceedance, Mizzy, Funstar, Land of Plenty, Quick Thinker and Zutori. The 2022 renewal will be held on April 5 and 6 at Inglis Riverside. Inspections begin on Wednesday, March 30. Buy better at Inglis Easter. Talk to me about Managar. Uh, well, Managar um, was an Aga Khan horse, a uh, lovely horse again. Uh, they gelded him early, which is a little unlike the Aga Khan. Yes. He ran second in the pre-parry and um, we negotiated to buy him with a, a fairly well-known American owner uh, who uh, bought a leg in him initially. We moved him across to Luca, who then trained him. He came down for a couple of campaigns down here, and eventually, after his second, we left him down here with, with Pete Moody. Again, a horse at uh, really mile-and-a-half horse. Uh, I don't know if he ever raced less than a mile-and-a-half before he, he went to Pete. And then, again... That same thing happened that happened with Hugs Dancer. Um, Pete put speed into his legs. Uh, he ended up coming uh, out and I think he won the um, Group 3 Carline Cup, I think it was. Uh, then went on Young Stakes and then uh, obviously won uh, three, three Group 1s. That autumn was extraordinary, the middle distant trio that he he collected. I remember looking at him at the mounting yard at Rose Hill before the Ranvet, I want to yeah. say it, it, it probably was. And he had quite a pronounced dip in his back. He was almost sway backed. And with yeah. that classic, elegant uh, Linamix Aga Khan head as well, he was he was almost like an old Munnings painting to look at, wasn't he? <laughs> I can't quote too many Munnings paintings, but um, <laughs> he, he certainly had that classical look about him, which you often get, you still get it in these Europeans. Um, We've had quite a number of horses like that. And uh, you get them out here and you say, gee, this, this horse looks like one of those old fashioned, well, I've got a couple of them just outside here. Um, in fact, they're, they're, they're late 18th century uh, paintings. And some of the horses that come out, come out of Europe look a little like that. Um, I recall a horse called Ibichenko who won a Geelong mm -hmm. Cup. Um, he, uh, he was probably the most classically looking horse I've ever owned. Whereas a Galo shop looked more like, you know, you, you trotter. <laughs> so as you mentioned, Manikar was an Aga Khan product. How, how do you develop relationships with these global breeders? They don't. They mustn't happen overnight. No, they don't. I think uh, we were lucky early days to um, um, be in France, particularly, uh, we're, and certainly we're in France in a fairly big way relative, and still are. Um, and so each year. Uh, in May, it hasn't happened for the last two years, but for the 10 years before that, um, with Emmanuel Dussereau, who's a very good trusted agent of ours, and, and Hubert de Berg, and usually one of our staff members, we go around uh, all the stables um, following the breeze up sale, 
and uh, and we have a look at all the three-year-olds that they think might come up for sale later in the year. Sometimes we can negotiate to buy into them at that stage, but mm -hmm. that 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 circuit that we've done for so long uh, has laid a really good foundation for our relationships there. And and I think um, there's a certain amount of pride um, from the French racing fraternity, in fact, that someone from Australia, there's a number of people, Jerry Jerry Ryan's got a big stable now in, in France, and there, there are others as well, uh, that, you know, um, they like the fact that these internationals are coming over there to race, even if they are basically using France in many instances as the, um, call it the apprenticeship for horses that might come to Australia. How is your French going, Terry? Are you conversant? Uh, you mean the language or? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that tells me all I need to know. Sacre bleu. After five years at school, um, I can read French very well, uh, understand it reasonably well. And uh, when I'm talking to a Frenchman, he's, he prefers that we speak in English. Right, right. <laughs> Please stop butchering my mother tongue, says the trainer. Yeah. I hesitate to bring this next horse up because while he was a wonderful galloper, he must have been frustrating. Cult hero Tom Melbourne. Well, he's frustrating in, in one way, but enormously pleasurable in another. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, again, I vividly remember... Uh, Hubie de Berg and I were at the December sales in Newmarket. And for most people that go to these sales, I'll know you get about five hours daylight at that time of the year. So most of the sales are conducted in the pitch black. And, and uh, Hubie said, look, I've been told to have a look at a horse racing in Dundalk. So we went into a steamy sort of bar at the back of Newmarket there and we watched this horse uh, win. And... Uh, Jimmy said, this course can't be too bad because they said it would go well, but he, the trainer didn't think it would win. Anyway, we had the horse bought literally by about uh, 10 o'clock the next morning. Um, and he wasn't ridiculous money, but you know, for a maiden, a four-year-old maiden, um, he was dear enough. As a result of that, we had all sorts of people come to us within the next 48 hours to try and buy him off us. It, it was an impressive win. So we brought him out here and obviously we started off Terrific. Very unruly. Anyone that saw him race in the All Aubrey Cup, he basically did everything he possibly could to, to lose it. Having Glenn Boss on board probably <laughs> helped, helped the story a bit because, as you can imagine, Boss is not short of superlatives whichever way they might go. That's very true. And then, then obviously, we, we had a very um, up and down, you would call it, uh, time with Lee Friedman for the next... Uh, uh, until we decided to move the horse to Chris. And uh, with Chris, the horse the horse had a, a consistent career, you might call it, um, but he, he did develop a following, and the, which he still has he's out at Living Legends. I, I believe he's the most popular horse out there, they tell me. And uh, as a result of that, you know, we really, the owners in him were very, very pragmatic about the whole situation kept earning money um he kept running second in group ones behind good horses but um he developed this this cult following and a great horse to have uh, absolute character as a horse he preferred to stand in the stalls at the races facing the wall rather than facing out wow he he, he was he was a horse that preferred if you if you put him in a box with hey he'd, he'd 
bring it all into the middle of the into the into the middle of the box. He was a really quirky horse, but he was Irish, so that may explain a few of these habits. But he was very, very quirky. Very quirky. He was like in the sense like an equine Howard Hughes or something. something like that. He was certainly unusual, but a lot of talent and um Someone unfortunately worked out that if he, if he had have won all the races that he ran second in, he would have won something like $16 million. Oh. As it was, he, he won 1.4 or 1.5. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that, whoever crunched those numbers. That's that's character building. Uh, Denise Martin and I talked about this on her, her podcast, the, the concept of your horses acting as, as billboards for the business. Is there one horse that you could put your finger on that's done more than any to drive new owners to OTI? I, I couldn't say there was because, you know, horses are transient in the broader sense. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people that come into race or came into racing through COVID probably didn't know much about racing prior to COVID. And, you know, um, and COVID's been a, a very, very, say, good period for, you know, the development of, horse racing ownership but there's probably you, you know you you look at horses now like um i'm thunderstruck mm. and you know he's a most appealing he's he's out there you know you can't miss him mm. um especially with those white blinkers on and so you know he you know everyone tells you about white thunderstruck but you can get a you know a relatively insignificant 15 two-hand filly like aloisia who wins the the um the guineas, a thousand guineas, and starts favourite in the in the oaks, mm. and no one, no one, will, no one, no one sees her, you know. And I think mm. that's generally the case. I think, you know, you get horses that set racing apart like Winks, and then you see other, you know, magnificent specimens like Might and Power, who whose physique matched his name. So I can't, I couldn't say there's one horse that actually is out there more than others. World champion sprinter Harry Angel. With a time form rating of 132, more than Nature Strip, Classic Legend, or Red Zell, is it any wonder that his first yearlings have averaged more than nine times his fee? Is it any wonder that they have caught the eye of Chris Waller, Anthony and Sam Friedman, Michael and Richard Friedman, and Seamus Mills, to name but a few? They believe in angels, and why not? After all, he could fly. Tom Melbourne allows me to pivot to another area of the OTI business that you place front and centre, welfare and aftercare. He's at Living Legends, as is Gilo Chop, and, and Doremus was there before he, he died. Not all OTI horses warrant a place at that facility. What happens to those that don't end up there or at stud? And how important is being front foot about promoting activity in the welfare space to OTI's business? Uh, well, it's... it's... It's front and centre of it. Um, we we took a few big steps after the famous ABC report. Um, I think we always did welfare reasonably well. But after that report, it, it came home, you know, irrespective of the sensationalism and the inaccuracies portrayed in some of that reporting, it came home to us uh, very clearly that unless, as an industry, we took this issue seriously... It, it could become our, our Achilles heel. And it doesn't take much. And we've seen it in other areas. We almost saw it with the dogs a few years ago, where politicians will see that there are more votes in saying no than saying yes. And we're all of a sudden, you know, in a very, very defensive framework. 
and on welfare more broadly, this is the case. So at that time, what we did, we set up a welfare division. We appointed someone from our staff to uh, head that up, uh, who's done a magnificent job and still doing it, uh, Cam Wansborough. Um, we, we added an extra $2,000 to the sale price of all the horses that we offered for partnership. So, uh, and that went into a welfare fund. So that mm. our welfare fund now has a, a good bank balance. Uh, and then we introduced a tracking system, which meant that any horse that came through our um, uh, operation uh, was tracked for the rest of their lives by virtue of the people taking the horse from us, signing an agreement that they would participate in our tracking operation. And then if they passed it on to somebody else, they would do it. So you can actually go on to our website uh, now and see where all these horses are. And I would encourage our listeners to do that because it's quite a long list and it, and it, it outlines whether they're at, at living legends, whether they've been moved on to another trainer or whether they are a show horse or, or, or being re-educated. I think it's, it's, it's very thorough and the traceability aspect is something that it probably needs to be more visible as a, as a whole. And I know Racing Victoria and Racing New South Wales are doing making strides in that direction, but people probably need to understand how many strides are being made in that direction, right? Well, I think the authorities have got to make sure that they understand the difference between horse welfare and brand welfare. We're, we're seeing our racing authorities, um, you know, uh, pump up themselves by saying we're putting this money into horse welfare. A lot of that money is going into brand welfare. Right. And, and brand welfare is very important. We've got to protect the brands of our serious races, but it's got nothing at all to do with the simple health of every horse. And, and I, I think um, it's probably been disappointing to me that that report that was prepared uh, last year uh, really hasn't gained more traction amongst, uh, you know, our head jurisdictions because we do need a national approach to it and, and it must be focused... Uh, in, in that sense, on the combination of tracking and welfare. Unless we can track, we can't actually guarantee welfare. If we can track, we can guarantee welfare. And so, and to your point, to your point, Terry, as well, that the national approach is necessary because horses, as you know, they go from Victoria to New South Wales to Queensland after they have retired from racing, and the ability to track is is compromised as a result of it being a state by state run scenario right yeah it is it has and and really um this is i suppose one of the deficiencies uh of the current impasse that we have with racing australia that uh this this area isn't being given the attention that it should be because it, it's not hard in this day and age with technology to put a chip in a horse's ear that's been retired and track it for the rest of its life um you know it's simply a matter of the will giving funds to it and making sure someone's there to manage it in the longer term properly. And I think at root, understanding the dire need to do it, right? Uh, Is there yeah. an element of head in the sand happening on welfare in general? Um, there's, there's some people doing some marvellous things in welfare, mm. many of them doing it at their own volition with no remuneration. Uh, in a racing Racing jurisdictions, I don't care whether it's New South Wales, Victoria, anywhere, obviously they've got KPIs to meet on an annual basis. And this is not only applicable to, this is Australian business more generally, mm. on things that have a long-term benefit. 
Um, in other words, things that, you know, you're really not going to see the benefit of this in a tangible sense, other than the successful acceptance of racing as a legitimate sport by the public generally for, for years. Now, if we don't, if we don't put it in now, we're going to be finding an offensive action down the line in the same way as we're doing it now with the Greens coming out with their policy. As silly as that, that is, but it's not, as, it's not that difficult to make a case against things like the whip. We need to address these issues on the front foot, even though they may not give us an immediate boost in betting turnover or stake money or other things that are part of the, the racing jurisdiction's KPI framework. So, you know, it's, it's, we do need some longer-term thinking on some of these key issues that are going to affect racing for the, for the next 20 years. And perhaps some, some less reactionary thinking. We, we do have a tendency as an, as an industry to lash out at criticism rather than to digest it and, and, and find a way to address it in a, in a measured way. I, while we're on a roll here, I just want to ask you with your, as you said yourself, in New Zealand in particular, but also in Australia in the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, there wasn't that much between standard breads and thoroughbreds in terms of popularity with the general public. There obviously has been a change there. Thoroughbreds have, have, have put a gap on standard breads in terms of just awareness yeah. of, of, of the sport with the general public. Are there any canaries in the coal mine from your standard bread experience that you are seeing thoroughbred racing repeat that potentially we need to get ahead of? Well, obviously, we've just touched on welfare. That is potentially one. I think the other is management structure. We've got a diverse range of what you might call management systems running Australian racing. Uh, we have a, to be quite blunt, a fairly bureaucratic system running in Victoria. We've got multiple clubs who are continually mixing it with each other and racing Victoria on various aspects of the way the industry should run. Uh, in New South Wales, we've seen a consolidation of that, as we've seen it in Queensland and even before that in Western Australia. Um, I think there's a, a real canary uh, in the coal mine, as you call it, for the way racing is administered in Victoria if we were to get a downturn in the revenue sources that come into the industry. Because we're all doing pretty well now because we're getting good money back uh, mm. from the um, consumption tax and from the other forms of revenue that flow into racing. But you turn that around, and of course, it then becomes a little late to try and change your business model around. I'm sure most people in Victoria, most people that have some sort of business knowledge would realise that if we were setting up racing in Victoria at the moment, we certainly wouldn't set it up with the same sort of structure that we've got now. So it's going to take someone with the, the necessary to actually address this, and it probably has to start with at the top through the, you know, the, the government. Unfortunately, you hate saying the government has to do it, but there's been no sign in Victoria in this last decade. And, and to put it mildly, we see it in the, the, the way that the stake money in Victoria has, has not grown in the same way as it has in New South Wales. New South Wales stake money in the last 10 years has jumped by just on 100%, just over 100%. In the last 10 years in Australia, it's jumped by about 58%. Now, that, mm. that says something about the way the industry is, is working or where it's spending its money. So I think that's, that's a real canary in the coal mine for us in Victoria. Um, and it's going to take someone with, as I say, a lot of guts to address that. But the, the, 
probably the more pragmatic sorts of issues are the issues that really require a national approach, like welfare, uh, like race, major race planning, these sorts of these sorts of areas. Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you subscribe to the TDN AusNZ Daily Edition. Sales reports, industry insights and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. You've won a Golden Eagle with uh, I'm Thunderstruck this year. You've you've run second in a an all-star mile with him, but you've also won a Melbourne Cup and you, you, you've won four derbies uh, across the Tasman uh, on either side. What is your position on what people call pop-up races versus the traditional stuff? Where do you see their place? Obviously, you don't have a, an issue with contesting them. Oh, not at all. Uh, and I think what we've got to do is, is not muddy the water by comparing ourselves directly with the rest of the world when it comes to patent racing. Uh, unlike most of the rest of the world, except Hong Kong, we race geldings here. Now, geldings really, from an owner's point of view, have no real significance in terms of the patent system. You know, we're not going to make any money by selling a gelding that's going to go on and do anything after it's retired from racing. So pop-up races have a real role here because basically they give good prize money to the best horse that runs in that race. If the Golden Eagle or indeed the Everest or the all-star mile was ran in Europe. Uh, rather than having eight or nine geldings in a 14, 15 horse field, you're more likely to have uh, 12 and a couple of geldings. So the comparison between the patent system as it's worked in Europe and being the genesis of what we have uh, is very different. So I think these, these pop-up races have a real place. People like betting on them. It gives the industry something to promote. So they're, you know, they're creative exercises. I think, I think there's, there's more room for a, a style of uh, stake, staking these races that we're yet to explore. Um, so I think they're there. Now, unfortunately, it does very little for our breeders because they need to be able to differentiate product quality. But we're already seeing with a horse like Yes, 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 who didn't win a group one, but is able to go off and stand at start on the back of winning an Everest. I want to talk about Terry Henderson Consulting and what it taught you about the OTI business as, as we know it today, because you have people working for you currently uh, at OTI. You have a team around you and it's, it, there is a corporate structure much like I imagine you came across, you know, working in the transport and logistics space for, for so many years. How do you build a culture in a racing business? Because racing isn't necessarily something that goes corporate as a, as a rule traditionally. It's something you almost have to graft on, right? If you, if you go back to your old-fashioned studies and look at what leadership is all about, a leadership is about developing a group of people who you can... Uh, mold into a, uh, a framework that enables you to achieve set objectives, objectives in a manner that achieves your, your overall business strategy. And, and culture is a critical part of that, the same way as having a good financial system is a critical part of that. Mm. Um, culture to me is incredibly important. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, a footy club, a race club, a stable or a, a business. Um, and we see it. 
um, we, we deal with a lot of training operations. Uh, and I think there's a really good example emerging, and I don't like to pull out individuals, individuals yeah. but we're seeing a very different culture developing in the Ma Eustace stable. And, 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 and they've got a business structure behind it there. We've only got a couple of horses with Kieran and Dave, but they're, they're both good guys and uh, we really admired what they're doing. That, that, they've got a business framework there, but they're not only you know, making sure that they make money and put their horses in the right races and do all those sorts of things. So they're very aggressive, as we know, in the marketplace. But they're, they're also going out and they're saying, uh, kids, if you want to come and work for us over the school holidays, come in and work for us. You know, we've, we've, we'll, we'll make way for you and we'll teach you what the racing industry is all about. Now, that to me says that there's, they're developing a culture which is more holistic in terms of that business going forward in the longer term. Um, you get, say, in Sydney, um, Chris, Chris's, Chris Waller's culture in that. Uh, again, we've only got a couple of horses with Chris. But I think that his training operation, and I've been able to see the John Gostons and the Andre Farbs and the William Haggis, the best trainers around the world. Chris's operation is up there with all those best ones. He is so methodical, he's almost military-like mm. in the way that he's able to have his people know what they have to do. And it doesn't matter whether it's pre-race or post-race with their reporting to their clients. Uh, that it, and it says, this is, this is the modus operandi we have. And as a result of that, he's developed a, an incredibly sound culture around all these staff people you you go into each of the stables and you go in at the same time you know that horses get a chance to rest for a couple of hours in the morning those sorts of things so so i think i think the business side things that we see in business are very applicable particularly in stable uh, um in in stable operations a few years ago i had an issue with the melbourne racing club about the culture of the the melbourne racing club out there now fortunately things have moved on and um, and we resolved all those issues, I think, in a, in a hopefully a satisfactory way. But I didn't like the culture that was over there. I didn't like the fact that someone was being disqualified and everyone was taking him out to lunch. That said something about the culture to me. And, and those sorts of things, you know, really I arc up about, to be quite frank. But they're, they're in racing generally, I would say those sorts of things are in the minor. I think generally racing, because it's such a an intensive hands-on industry. Most people, once they're given proper instructions, they know what's expected of them, get out and do it properly. Two things you you brought up are really interesting, Terry, in, in light of the other things we've discussed today, uh, talking around perception and the cultural issues that you identified at, at Caulfield. That's a perception issue to the outside world as well, you know, for, yeah. in terms of brand damage. And then the other one was around the, the Ma Eustace stable, the Waller stable, but also I think stables like Godolphin, those that have a slightly more corporate structure is Gen Z and Gen Y have come to expect that kind of an onboarding when they start a job. The, yeah. the, the concept of a 20-something, early 20-something, going up to Mr. Smith in the mounting yard and saying, have you got any work? And yeah. Mr. Smith going, yeah, turn up at 3am tomorrow, I'll hand you a rake. Yeah. Uh, you know, it probably isn't going to fly anymore if exactly. we want to get young people into the industry. Yep, exactly. And uh, and fortunately, we are tending to move with our hours is one of the mm. issues that, you know, Ma Eustace have been strong about and so have most other trainers, to be frank. Uh, we've got to move that sort of, if we're going to attract young people, we've got to, we've got to actually get out there and, and make our industry a target industry 
uh, for people that might love horses and, uh, and not, not be told by their parents, we don't want to get into that game, it's full of crooks. Yes. All right, let's wrap up with our final two segments that we do on every episode of Connections Cast. First of all, we're going to do a quick fire, fire would you rather. I'll give you two options. You just tell me your preferred of the two, and then we'll finish with our, our usual final question. Are you ready? Yes. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Melbourne Cup. Zabiel or Dane Hill? Zabiel. Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere? Southern Hemisphere. Doremus or Choken? Draw. <laughs> Get the splinters out. <laughs> Beer or champagne? Uh, champagne. And I think I know the answer to this last one. Top lot or winner's circle? A winner's circle. <laughs> Every time. All right. And finally, if you were to be put in charge of racing in this country, what would you do on your first day? Ask my staff how they think the organisation can improve. Consultation would be your very first act. Yeah. That's really interesting. Terry Henderson, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, I appreciate that your time is precious and you've given me more than we agreed to. So thank you again for coming on to Connections Cast and good luck with the rest of the order. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends. And of course, subscribe to TDN OzNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening. <laughs>